exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Carrie Condor. I have the honor and privilege of speaking with you all this morning. I'm the newest member of the oversight team and have only served in this capacity for a few months. My partner, Andrew, and I have a seven-year-old daughter, Natalie, and we've been attending Pearl for over a decade. As my website blurb says, I love Pearl's intentionality about sharing the love of Christ at a common table with room for all. I grew up in the Portland area and part of a family of devout Catholics. Andrew and I found the pearl as we developed together as a new couple whose past religious practices were not aligning with our new collective spiritual selves. When we found pearl, we were also in the midst of a struggle with infertility and found an outpouring of love and support, a place where we felt a sense of belonging. Professionally, I consider myself a teacher, a researcher, and a social scientist. I am a professor and doctor of education, and currently the director of a teacher preparation program at Linfield University. My mission as an educator is to cultivate collaborative, culturally sustaining, and equitable practices in education. I value relationships, innovative and asset thinking, critical reflection, and practices that center on love and social justice. As I considered what was on my heart to speak to you about this morning, many emotions and deep struggles came to mind, personal, professional, familial, spiritual, the list goes on. I am willing to dive into my deepest moments with you. Many of you have walked alongside my struggles with infertility, for example times when my heart and spirit seemed shattered. Almost a decade of hope, disappointment, hope, disappointment, jealousy, fertility treatments, hope, disappointments, excitement and grief, hopelessness, loss of pregnancy, more fertility treatments, Loss of pregnancy, fertility treatments, fertility treatments, joy, heartbreak, adoption classes, heartbreak, overhearing my mother tell my fertile sister that motherhood is the best part of life, fear, feelings of isolation, jealousy, fertility treatments, pregnancy, Everything my heart most desired, a baby girl. Emergency C-section, 14 days in the hospital, postpartum depression, 
not wanting the colicky baby who wouldn't stop screaming, would not sleep unless I held her upright and bounced on a yoga ball, acid reflux. Guilt, shame, therapy, healing, another miscarriage and another, a successful pregnancy, second trimester, I breathe, I share the news, I post ultrasound pictures of the baby, choose names, Natalie sings to my belly, tells me how she will be the best sister ever. I deliver that baby too soon, way too soon in the hospital, emergency room, in the toilet. That moment wasn't the worst though. It was hearing Natalie wailing when I tell her the baby has died. Wailing and wailing and calling out, why, why? Where did the baby go, mama? Why did the baby die? And she has not forgotten. And it's two years later. Interestingly enough, in therapy, a technique where the therapist moved her fingers back and forth to lead eye movement uh, with verbal processing helped me discover that my self-talk, the one that said, my body is broken, I'm defective, stemmed not only from these experiences, but also from childhood medical trauma. What is also interesting is that my healing not only comes from looking within, but also recognition, engaging in difficult conversations, being vulnerable, taking action, and the healing power of relationships. Throughout difficult times, I have struggled to find comfort when well-intentioned loved ones say that hard times only make you stronger until my therapist told me about the trees. Essentially, science has shown that trees in area, areas with the harshest weather conditions actually grow the strongest and deepest roots and also support one another. Other studies, and here's the scientist in me, have even found that trees talk to one another. I relate to the trees and I extend an invitation to all for connection particularly if this is a struggle you share, please reach out. The prompt for, prompt for speaking with you this morning was to share about myself, check, and also my heart for Pearl, and to share with you my hopes for our Pearl community. My heart for Pearl is connection, love, and transformation. As Mike discussed a couple of weeks ago, I also hope for our community to become stronger with anti-racism. As I share more about my dream for Pearl, I will be, as Isaac Newton said, standing on the shoulders of giants and sharing with you some quotes and work from others. <clears throat> so you will often hear me thanking them as I speak. Whether we know it or not, our race impacts us every moment of every day. As I begin to share more deeply about anti-racism with you, I'd like to start with a childhood story that jarred me. And hopefully end up again with looking within, recognition, a willingness to have difficult conversations, vulnerability, action, and the healing power of relationships. 
I grew up in a suburb of Portland in a conservative white Catholic family. My mother was a nurse and my father was a hospital administrator. They both worked for a Catholic medical system. I have one sister who's seven years older. My first memory of overt racism left me confused, to say the least. I was about eight years old. An adult in my life who I deeply love, who I knew as generous, kind, thoughtful, compassionate, threw me into complete cognitive dissonance with a reaction to my sister's date who came to our home to pick her up. Hateful things were said about this young black man. I remember being so confused because this person who had taught me so much about love and goodness was saying such awful things about a child who seemed quite nice and respectful to me. All the while I was inundated with messages of color blindness at school. I remember a popular t-shirt at the time that said, love sees no color. Clearly something significant was jarring me in this moment and I began to wonder more about racism. I attended primarily white schools my entire life. In college, I began my teacher training. I remember seeing a video in my educational psychology class where individuals of color were sharing their autobiographies. I was struck by my privilege, ignorance, and my desire to learn more. I've come a long way in my journey and still have far to go. I never want to stop understanding the relationships between culture, racism, and white privilege because to me that is what I must do as a white woman to work toward pushing out the inequities and barriers that cause suffering for my brothers and sisters of color. I must take action and continue to cultivate relationships in order to better fulfill the honor of having been identified as an ally. At the same time, I recognize that I have racial biases and I understand that being called a racist is actually not the worst thing. The worst thing is privately hiding my racism to stay safe, liked, and comfortable while others suffer and die. Thank you, Glennon Doyle, for articulating that. Dr. Maya Angelou said, do the best you can until you know better, and then when you know better, do better. In a moment of beautiful vulnerability and trust during a work meeting I was in a few years ago, a colleague and friend of color exclaimed, we really need more white folks to take on the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion here. This was a moment of realization for me. As a white woman in a predominantly white institution, I had been working closely with an equity team for several years. Among some celebrated advancement toward a more equitable curricula and anti-racist work in our institution, it was clear and alarming that our few colleagues of color were carrying a heavier burden, from tokenization to microaggressions, to always being the people to initiate conversations about race. I am so grateful that my colleague and friend, in a moment of turmoil and stress, so directly asked us to step it up. I'm reminded of a part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous essay letter from Birmingham Jail. I can never say that right. Birmingham Jail. There we go. Where he says, and I'm quoting his words directly here, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion 
that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who's more de devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is absence of tension, to the positive peace, which is the presence of justice. I aim to be a better ally for positive peace, to step up and start shouldering more of the burdens of systemic racism created through whiteness. I also acknowledge that my whiteness makes me the oppressor and that no amount of anti-racism work can remove that. And I aim to use my white privilege to challenge everyday racism. As I dive deeper here, I may say things that sit funny with you or make you cringe. That's good, in fact, that's often the good stuff. I do not know how folks identify racially in this physical or virtual space, but I want to make an offer. To those of you who do identify as a person of color or mixed race, I welcome you to hold me accountable anytime I step in it, and I will. Know that I will accept your feedback with grace and seek to do better. At the same time, I do not expect any person to speak for their entire culture or race. And I understand that my growth is my responsibility and do not expect anyone to be responsible for educating me on behalf of their race. As Lama Rod Owens says in Love and Rage, if we don't do our work, then we become work for other people. I welcome connections individually after this about any discomfort or nuance you experience. My dream for Pearl is that we intentionally practice anti-racism in our hearts, in our actions, in our conversations, in our systems, in our practices, in our policies. I believe that to intentionally practice anti-racism, we must start with knowing ourselves both on personal and collective levels. Author and activist Tema Oaken states, doing our personal work so that we can show up for anti-racism is ironically a collective practice. We need to support each other as we work to build on our amazing strengths, our power, our commitment, our kindness, our empathy, our bravery, our keen intelligence our sense of humor, our ability to connect the dots, our creativity, our critical thinking, our ability to take risks and make mistakes. We also need to support each other as we work to address the effects of trauma and disease associated with white supremacy and racism. We do this by calling each other in rather than out. We do this by holding the contradiction that we are both very different from each other as a result of our lived experiences and we are also interdependent as a growing community seeking and working for anti-racism. We do this by taking responsibility for ourselves and how we show up. In engaging in some personal work myself and with past students of mine, I have found, again, the trees. Ben is showing an image shortly on the screen here, a metaphor and helpful tool from Zaretta Hammond. Working through this metaphor helps understanding culture of self at various levels, surface, 
shallow, and deep. As a professor teaching equity, diversity, and inclusion classes to pre-service teachers, I often begin with culture. A comment I would often hear from white students is, but Dr. Condor, I don't have a culture, I'm just white. This moment is ripe for exploration of culture of self. I've witnessed students develop a strong sense of culture and personal identity. This leads to study of culture and race and what happens when one culture is dominant, particularly in systems, power, advancement, success, benefit. So at this point, I'd like to make a distinction here. White culture exists and so does white supremacy culture meaning the ways in which my white culture, if gone unexamined, dominates in ways that are othering and oppressive. Also worth noting, Christianity has for more than 17 centuries constituted the primary culture or has been a major determinant of Western culture by which hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of believing Christians have had their most deeply held beliefs formulated. That comes from Michael Steele, former executive director of the Oregon Holocaust Resource Center. Very briefly, white supremacy culture is a form of racism centered upon the belief that white people are superior to people of other racial backgrounds. While often associated with violence perpetuated by the KKK and other white supremacy groups, it also describes a political ideology and systemic oppression that perpetuates and maintains the social political, historical, and or industrial white domination. Characteristics of white supremacy manifest in organizational culture and are used as norms and standards without being proactively named or chosen by the full group. The characteristics are damaging to both people of color and white people in that they elevate the values, preferences, and experiences of one racial group above all others. Thank you, NEA Center for Social Justice for that definition. White supremacy culture is inextricably linked to all other oppressions. Sexism, class and gender oppression, ableism, ageism, Christian hegemony. These and more are all interconnected and intersected and stirred together. Thank you, Tema Oken. I'd like to share some racial equity principles that were developed by Dismantling Racism Works Collaborative after a decade of experience working with and for community-based leaders and organizations living into their racial justice commitment. I'll give you a moment to look at those. I think the most I'm sorry, I think the first principle is key for us at Pearl, know yourself. Tema Oken explains, taking action for racial justice requires a level of self-awareness that supports us to be clear about what we are called to do, what we know how to do, and where we need to grow. Said another way, we need to know our strengths, our weaknesses, and our desire for growth. Knowing ourselves means that we develop the capacity to show up more appropriately and effectively to whatever the work is. That we ask for help when needed, admit when we don't know what we are doing, and claim our skills gracefully when we do. 
Knowing ourselves means that we are committed to our own emotional maturity and wisdom. Knowing ourselves means admitting that white supremacy and racism affect us all. We need to develop the habit of catching how we have internalized cultural messages about our worth or lack of worth and often act out of these messages without realizing it. We need to develop the habit of catching how we reproduce dominant cultural habits of leadership. Breaking down white supremacy culture is not, should not remain on the shoulders of individuals of color. So Pearl, returning to Mike's reflections this month, the word he used to describe the essence of Pearl's story over the last 20 years was repentance. It's about much more than feeling terrible about oneself, but to go beyond the mind that you have. Change your mind. Mike said, the spirit of repentance requires openness to new ways of thinking and being. It necessitates humility. There is much for us to learn and to become. It insists on an unending, unending journey of growth and transformation. Jesus said, you never know where the spirit is going to blow and breathe and work its magic. Mike shared that repentance points to a trajectory within our faith community that is truly good. What I'm sharing here is an image that is reflective of a tool offered by Tema Oaken and her colleagues. The tool is a list of white supremacy culture characteristics descriptors and also suggested antidotes, which is too comprehensive to share with you today. As a meager introduction, Okun describes it as an analytical tool designed to help better understand white supremacy culture. The intention is to help us understand the water in which we are all swimming so that we can collaboratively work together to build and sustain cultures that help us thrive as communities and individuals cultures that are not based on the abuse of power and accumulation of profit. Cultures that are based on interdependence, justice, and respect for each other and the earth. Cultures that embody the belief that we all do better when we all do better. One of the purposes of listing characteristics of white supremacy culture is to point out how organizations that unconsciously use these characteristics as their norms and standards make it difficult, if not impossible, to open the door to other cultural norms and standards. As a result, many of our organizations, while saying we want to be anti-racist and multicultural, really only allow others to belong if they adapt or conform to already existing cultural norms. Being able to identify and name the cultural norms and standards we want is a step towards racial equity, knowing self. My point is simply that I hope we can use tools such as this to help us name the ways in which our faith organization can know itself better and also examine ways in which we can repent and implement antidotes, of which Oaken shares many, to continue our trajectory toward, of repentance and toward an anti-racist Christian community. I invite us to investigate how white supremacy culture characteristics and qualities lead to disconnection from each other, ourselves, and all living things, and how the antidotes can support us to reconnect. 
Oaken encourages us. If you read these characteristics and qualities as blaming or shaming, perhaps they are particularly alive for you. By the way, I identify with most, if not all, of the characteristics on the screen. If you find yourself becoming defensive as you read them, lean in to the gift of defensiveness and ask yourself, what are you defending? The description of these characteristics that Oaken provides in the full article are meant to help us see our culture so that we can transgress and transform and build culture that truly supports us individually and collectively. Breathe into that intention if you can. Some final thoughts. My hope is that our anti-racism work does pay close attention to whiteness as a mean to examine systems of oppression rather than centering whiteness with the goal of recognizing inequities and mobilizing for change. Thank you, Christine Sleater. With an approach through unpacking whiteness as a cultural construct, we may uncover how whiteness within the framework of anti-racism can move to centralized justice and equity. My hope is for our community to take collective action in solidarity with the anti-racism movement, motivated by love for humanity, particularly our brothers and sisters of color. And also with caution for those of our community who identify as white, that we may move toward better allyship while recognizing a tendency towards paternalism, a white supremacy cultural norm. There's a fine line between solidarity and paternalism. Stand with, not over, and be inclusive of people who are affected by the decisions in the decision-making process. Thank you again, Okun. Okun, sorry, I mispronounced her name there. Over the years, I have experienced many barriers to moving the conversation about race and racism within organizations. Most of the barriers exist due to the good-bad binary regarding racist ideology. Thank you, Robin D'Angelo. If one acknowledges a belief that has ties to white supremacy beliefs, the binary creates an impossible decision to be a racist or to deny being a racist. Rather than fall into this good-bad binary, my hope is that we uplift anti-racist ideology as described by Ibram Kendi, rather than identifying what racism is, we can aim to dismantle what anti-racism is not, while holding the belief that the culture of whiteness is the ultimate barrier for white people to move beyond the good-bad binary. Thank you, Annie Scott. I also recognize the presence of white fragility, D'Angelo, in all conversations around anti-racism and pray that this tendency is overcome. Because often white fragility is used to halt conversations about race with a variety of complex strategies as, as, and simple deflecting tools such as tears. Or so often I hear white folks say, I'm afraid I will say the wrong thing. Glennon Doyle reflects on this. She says, we feel like we are always saying the wrong things and that people are always getting upset about that, but I do not think people become upset just because we say the wrong things. I think people are upset and we are defensive, hurt, and frustrated because we have fallen into the trap of believing that becoming racially sober is about saying the right thing 
instead of becoming the right thing. That showing up is based in performing instead of transforming. The way we show up reveals that we haven't yet done the studying and listening required to become the right thing before trying to say the right thing. While reflecting on white supremacy culture can inform us, it does not have to define us. It is a construct, and anything constructed can be deconstructed and transformed. Matthew 3, 8 encourages us, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Will you pray with me? We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.